Open your Bibles, please, to the book of Romans, Romans chapter 6. You can find that in your Bibles near four big books, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, then you'll find Acts, and then Romans. And while you're looking for that, let me bring all of us up to speed. Uh, we were in Romans a little over 13 weeks ago, and then we took a break over the summer and we did our Minor Prophets series. And now we're jumping back in, kind of to the part two, if you will, of Romans. And we've made it up to chapter six. And what I'd like to do, just for the sake of our guests, but also as a refresher for us, to briefly recap the last two chapters, not all five that we read, but just the last two. Here's what we were learning just before we took our break. In chapter four, Paul says, let me tell you something. Salvation is not something that you can earn. It's not a wage that you can gain. You can't do it by yourself. You can't pull up your bootstraps, and if you just do the right combination of perfect things, then you can earn that golden ticket. You can't do that by yourself. What we learn is that unlike other religions that might say if you live a good enough life, then you'll achieve nirvana and you'll be able to go up and to reach bliss. Or if you do enough good deeds that exceed your evil deeds, then Allah will accept you. Christianity says you have been saved by grace through faith in Christ, period, dot. And this is not of yourselves, it is a gift of God. And then in chapter 5, Paul says... You know, if you think that you are saved because Christ died for you, how much more confident can you now be knowing that Christ lives for you? Christ is, we're not serving a dead Lord, we're serving a risen Lord who works inside of you, developing the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control, that you can be made new because Christ wants to do a good work in you. And then we come to a bit of a, a fork in the road moment. Paul realizes something, that any person with a sin nature, that's everybody, is going to find a possible loophole in this message. And what is that? The loophole is this. If we are saved by grace, and if God keeps giving grace upon grace upon grace, then what incentive do I have to live a godly life? I put it this way, if Christians are saved by sheer grace, then why can't I do whatever I want? So we find there's a unique danger, spiritually speaking, to preaching grace to sinners. And what is that? When we hear the message of grace, we try to exploit it. We say, maybe I can have my cake and eat it too. Maybe I can say, God has saved me from sin, and I know that he'll continue to save me in sin because it is by grace that I've been saved through faith, and so I might as well live my life the way that I want. And so then the, the Apostle Paul says, you think that you can go on sinning so that grace may abound? By no means. And here's what we discover about this. We finally discover that every person who's listening to this story, has now been offended. To the religious person, the Apostle Paul has taken this massively huge sledgehammer, raised it above his head, and has slammed it down on all things religiosity. To every religious person who says, I want my good deeds to stand for something. The fact that I go to church more, I read my Bible more, I do more good deeds, I try to live a devout and godly life, I'm doing all the moral stuff. I want it to count for something. 
And scripture says you can only have one savior, Jesus or yourself, make your pick. It offends us. But up to this point, the irreligious person has been having a great time with this. They have been watching Paul dismantle all the theological arguments that religious people might have. And he says, you're not off the hook either. You think you can go on sinning so that grace may abound? By no means. You cannot continue to live in sin. God has called you to something more. And so finally, what we find here is up to Romans chapter 6, now everyone is on exactly the same page. Now we're all offended at Paul. And Paul is going to take it a step further still. We ask this question. If our new incentive for obedience isn't to earn salvation, what incentive do we have? What is the motivational force behind following God in obedience and love. Why should we do it? And the answer, in a single word, is gratitude. Gratitude. Because we are grateful for all the things that God has done for us, that we long to live obedient lives. James, the half-brother of Jesus, he says it's the byproduct of our faith. Kind of like exhaust coming out of a car. If you have true, genuine faith in Christ for what he has done, then good deeds will follow out of gratitude in our hearts. For those of you who are parents with young children, um, I just want to entrust a resource to you if you want to teach the principles of scripture and catechism to your kids. A resource that my wife and I use is the New City Catechism. And it is developed by Tim and Kathy Keller. And it uses the Heidelberg Catechism and the Westminster Catechism. And it outlines it in a 52-week schedule. And in week 34, it talks about what we're looking at this morning. The question is this. Since we are redeemed by grace alone, through Christ alone, must we still do good works and obey God's word? There it is. There's the question. What's the answer? Yes. Why? So that our lives may show love and gratitude to God, and so that by our godly behavior, others may be one to Christ. In gratitude to God for all that he has done, we long to live with him to walk with him in obedience. And this week, we're going to look at kind of the flip side of the same coin. If we say our new incentive is not to try and earn salvation, but it is gratitude, then here's kind of the flip side of the same question. What obligation do we have to follow Jesus? Or maybe a, a more practical way of saying this is, why is it so hard if we know that we're supposed to follow God in obedience and love, and he has outlined his law for us, then why do we keep sinning? Why is it so hard for us to simply do what the Bible says? And Paul wants to engage with that question this morning. So if you got your Bibles, the book of Romans. Romans chapter 6, starting at verse 15. Take a look at the first two verses with me. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under law, but under grace? By no means. Don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one you obey, whether you are slaves to sin, which leads to death, or slaves to obedience, which leads 
to righteousness. Slavery. That's the metaphor that Paul uses. One that we're, we're not all too fond of, right? But it might be helpful to consider for a moment the context for uh, when Paul has been talking about this. It's helpful to know that a third of all the Romans that the Apostle Paul was talking to at this time were slaves. The Greek word is doulos. They were indentured servants. But we kind of have to forget about our thoughts of what slavery is and in its place understand the first century context of what a doulos is. So oftentimes we hear slavery and we think, you know, bloodied backs and shackles on your wrists and on your ankles and having no human rights and being ravaged and beaten and tortured and all those kinds of things. That's not what Paul is talking about here. In the first century context, there were like I said, a third of the population would willingly enter into a bond-servant relationship. And so what would often happen is either they were in debt and they couldn't pay off that debt, or they had a large family and they couldn't afford to feed the mouths, or they didn't have a house to live in, and so they would go up to a master and they would say, Allow us to come under your care. We will become a bond servant, an indentured servant, a volunteer slave to you. And in that way, all of their basic needs would be met. They would have housing, they would have clothing, they would have food, they would have work, and sometimes they would even have a minor income if they had a debt to pay off. And once they paid off that debt to society or they feel like they've uh, built a better life for themselves, they could voluntarily come out of that relationship. But the assumption is also the moment you became a doulos, you were subject to your master. You would follow them. And so that's kind of the nuance that we have to think about here. Not whipped bloodied backs, but volunteer subjugation. Volunteer service. And Paul says in verse 16, look again. Don't you know that when you offer yourselves voluntarily to someone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one you obey? Whether you're slaves to sin, which leads to death, a volunteer slave to sin, or a volunteer slave to obedience, which leads to righteousness. So Paul, he just makes it so clear, doesn't he? He says, let me tell you, you have two options. That's it. This is the way I put it in your note sheet. You can be either a slave to sin or a servant of God. You can be a slave to sin or a servant of God, one or the other. And like I said, when you see that word slave in your Bible, Paul uses it eight times just in this little chapter alone. Eight times he uses that word doulos, this word bond servant. Paul is reminding us that every single one of us is a servant to something. We're all a servant of something. Now, we don't like that. I think it's actually even more difficult to preach Romans 6 in the 21st century than it was in the 1st century. And it was offensive then. Because what we see here is the, the main driving force, the number one principle of being a Western, sophisticated, civilized, 21st century person is individualism. Freedom. I get to do what I want, when I want, 
with whom I want as long as they want it back, and no one gets to tell me what to do. I am free. And here comes along Paul, and he says, no, you're not. You're a slave to something. And the only question is, what are you a slave to? And it's even more dangerous for the people who think they are totally autonomous, totally free, but really, when it comes down to it, you just don't know what you are a slave to. Anyone um, a fan of Bob Dylan? Any Bob Dylan fans here in the room? Oh, yeah. Here's a, a quote for you. Some of you perhaps know this song, You Gotta Serve Somebody. It goes like this. You may be an ambassador of England or France. You may like to gamble. You might like to dance. You may be the heavyweight champion of the world. You may be a socialite with a long string of pearls. But you're going to have to serve somebody. Yes, indeed. You're going to have to serve somebody. Well, it may be the devil or it may be the Lord. But you're going to have to serve somebody. Wow. He was reading Romans 6. That's what he's doing right here. It's just amazing. Bob Dylan has the understanding of what Paul is telling us this morning. Everyone serves something. The only question is, what? A theologian by the name of Rebecca Pippert, she said this, whatever controls us is our Lord. The person who seeks power is controlled by power. The person who seeks acceptance is controlled by acceptance. We do not control ourselves. We are controlled by the Lord of our lives. And Paul tells us every single one of us is controlled by something. Now let's be honest for a second. I think for the majority of Christians, we think the worst possible thing in the world is if you are following the wrong religion, right? We say, oh, what a tragedy. But here's something that Satan has discovered, as sad as this may sound. He has discovered that you can just choose to serve yourself, and that will do perfectly fine. Or you can serve the God of success, or the God of power, or the God of acceptance, or even the God of autonomy and free will, and all those things will be perfectly fine to him. And so I think when we're thinking about this in our own minds and, and how this applies to our own lives, the question that remains is, what am I serving? What have I become a volunteer slave to? And Paul realizes that there's not much appeal here to this. So let's keep reading. Chapter 6, verse 17 to 19. It says this, But thanks be to God... That though you used to be slaves to sin, you have come to obey from your heart the pattern of teaching that has now claimed your allegiance. You've been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. I am, of course, using an example from everyday life because of your human limitations. So stop right there. So here's what Paul's doing. Let me ask you, by a show of hands, how many of you think that slavery is awesome? Just like the best, we should return to that, right? No, of course, no one thinks that. Not a single person would say slavery is good. We're happy that it's abolished. We're happy that it's done away with. We're happy that it's no longer a part of our society. But by the same token, here's the genius of this argument, what Paul is trying to outline here. He's trying to say, if you understood the heart of God, 
and what he longs for you, then you would voluntarily make yourself a doulos to God, a volunteer slave to God, because you know that he desires your good in every aspect of your life. And so if you understood the character of God, you would say, God, make me your servant. It reminds me of the story of Luke chapter 15, perhaps one of my favorite stories in scripture, the parable of the lost sons. And uh, I'm going to actually read from there in just a second. So put a tab in Romans chapter 6 and go and find Luke chapter 15. The story goes like this. The younger brother goes up to his father and he says, I wish you were dead. I want nothing to do with you. Give me my share of the estate so that I can be free from you. I want to be totally independent, totally free, total autonomy. And I can't do that when I'm under your roof. So let me leave. So he takes his share of the estate. He runs off to a distant country. And there he spends all of his fortune in wild and reckless living until he's down and out. And he has nowhere to turn. And there he starts feeding pigs in a pigsty and in that moment he comes to his senses scripture says take a look at this Luke chapter 15 starting at verse 17 it says when he came to his senses he said how many of my father's hired servants do loss have food to spare and here I am starving to death So I will set out and I'll go back to my father and I'll say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be your son. So make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and he went to his father. And so here's what scripture is trying to highlight here in Luke 15 and in Romans chapter 6. If you understood the heart of God, then you would happily trade your pigsty freedom for indentured servitude in God's kingdom. If you understood the heart of God, you would say, I would give up this free life that I'm having and all the misery that comes with it if I could be the least of these in the kingdom of God. Let's keep reading. Verse 19. Paul says, I'm using an example from everyday life because of your human limitations. Just as you used to offer yourselves as slaves to impurity and to ever-increasing wickedness, so now offer yourselves as slaves to righteousness, leading to holiness. When you were slaves to sin, you were free from the control of righteousness. What benefit did you reap at that time from the things that you are now ashamed of? Again, think of Luke chapter 15. You had everything. You lost everything. You destroyed your life. What benefit was it? Those things result in death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the benefit you reap leads to holiness, and the result is eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ, our Lord. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. So here is the final plea that Paul makes. He he wants us to feel the, the weighty difference between the two options that he has laid out before us. Paul says, listen, you can spend the rest of your days 
working and toiling and laboring for whatever God that you are worshiping, whether it be power or success or autonomy or acceptance or whatever else it may be, you can seek that rat race. But at the end of the day, you're going to get a big fat check called death. None of it's going to come with you. You're not going to gain anything from those sort of efforts. However, if you become a volunteer doulos to righteousness, then the gift of God is eternal life. So which do we choose? Sin which leads to death or obedience which leads to eternal life? Now here comes the obvious question. What, what I think is the obvious question. Why then do we struggle with this? If it's so obvious, then why don't we just stop sinning? It seems pretty simple, right? If we just follow the law and obey God, then God will bless our lives and we will have an eternity with him and everything's going to be okay. Why do we continue to get wrapped up and entangled in sin? Well, the Apostle Paul recognizes this. Getting ahead, we're going to look at this in two weeks. Romans chapter 5 says, Why is it that I do... Uh, sorry, uh, Romans 7, verse 15. Why is it that I do what I know I shouldn't do, and then I don't do what I know I should do? Why do I do that? So Paul gets it. He understands the grip of our sin nature, the traitor within, which always leads us down a deep, dark path. And so for the rest of our time this morning, I want to pull back the, the curtain on sin. And to ask ourselves openly and honestly, why is sin so enticing? So that we can put tools in our tool belt to help us grow in obedience and love for God. So that's what I want us to do. So I want us to look at what sin is, why it's so enticing, why it compels us, and how it works itself out in our life. So here's what I put in your note sheet. Why is sin so enticing? The answer, because Satan knows you better than you know yourself. And I think this is something we, we don't give a whole lot of thought or attention to whatsoever. We have some really strange notions of who Satan is. Often we have this caricature in our mind of a, a cute little red guy with a, a three-pronged pitchfork, right? Or we have no conception of him whatsoever, and we don't really give him a whole lot of attention. But do you know who Satan is? He's so wise and so cunning that he actually convinced a third of God's heavenly angels to worship him rather than God. He is cunning. He is crafty. And he knows you better than you know yourself. And so here are the two most common views of Satan, I think, that he either doesn't exist or He's some funny guy with a pitchfork, and regardless of which view you might have, he's exactly where he wants to be in your brain. He's exactly where he wants to be. He's happy with being in that place. And here's what this looks like, uh, practically speaking. Uh, I haven't been in ministry for very long, uh, just under 10 years, but I have learned over the years that most of us tend to grapple with the same sins over and over and over again. And if you know what the definition of insanity is, you know that it is trying the same things over and over and over again and expecting a different result. And in that way, all of us are a little bit insane. Because we're always grappling with the same things. Why is that the case? Well, because we have a unique bent in the way that we've been made 
and Satan tries to exploit that. And for those of you who like fishing, you can rest assured that Satan is going to use a unique bait that is custom filtered for you and the things that you grapple with. He's constantly watching you, observing your behaviors, the things that you do, the things that you don't do, what gets you up in the morning, the patterns and habits and behaviors that you conduct yourself in from a day-to-day, week-to-week, month-to-month, year-to-year basis. And he has developed a case to try to ensnare you and to entice you. C.S. Lewis, in his screw tape letters, third time in three weeks we've talked about this, but I love what he says. He says this, Indeed, the safest road to hell is the gradual one, the gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. In other words, Satan does not intend to startle you or to bring devastation or calamity upon your life when apathy will do. See, Satan wants you bored, inattentive, unobservant, going through the motions. And that's exactly where he wants you to be. He's happy for you to be in that place. And I think oftentimes, if we're honest with ourselves, the times when we cry out to God, why, 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 is when great calamity comes upon our life. And yet, sometimes if we're just following this kind of gentle path downward, this gentle slope, soft underfoot, without any signposts, without any turnings, then that is a very dark place to be. And here's something to consider, one more thing to consider about Satan. He is far more interested in your eternity than in your earthly life. Quite frankly, he doesn't care about your earthly life. His sole focus is on your eternity. And I think we need to give credit where credit is due. God is far more powerful than Satan. But he, Satan, is crafty and cunning. And he deserves our acknowledgement when it comes to our sin. So practically speaking, what is sin and how does it work out in my life? I want to give you a trajectory, a path, three things. Number one, it always starts with deception and desensitization. Deception and desensitization. Desensitization, the technical Webster's dictionary term, is the numbing of nerve endings, right? And just like that, this is the first step of the process of how sin works. Oftentimes, we might engage with something that we know is wrong. But if we continue to engage in that, we'll be desensitized by it, and we don't even think anything of it after that. We are totally desensitized. For those of you uh, who have gone to the dentist, you love desensitization. That's that process via the use of chemicals. They put it in your mouth and it numbs everything in your face, and then they can pull out your rotten teeth, and you're still as happy as a clam. Everything is a-okay. You can't even feel it. And in the same way, we can become desensitized to the sin in our life. It is always the first step in the process. Just to kind of give you some biblical proofs, take a look at a few passages that talk about deception and desensitization. 1 Corinthians 15, do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good character. 
Galatians 6, verse 7, do not be deceived. Whatever one sows, they will reap. 1 Peter 5, verse 8, do not be deceived, brothers and sisters. Satan prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And the only reason why Paul and Peter and the rest of the apostles would keep talking about deception is if we have an inclination to be deceived. And he says, be on guard. Do not be deceived. Here's the second thing that happens right on the heels of deception and desensitization leads to slavery and addiction. Pretty much every Sunday when um, Julie and I and the kids get home from worship, I will go downstairs in the basement with my kids. We'll have milk and cookies, and we will watch Planet Earth. That's our Sunday afternoon tradition. And if we're done Planet Earth, we'll watch Planet Earth 2. Then we'll watch BBC something, something about animals. We always watch those things. And uh, just a couple of months ago, we watched a BBC article or a BBC video on the Venus flytrap. Now, these things are awesome. Carnivorous plants. And you'll have this little fly that comes down, and it tastes the sweet nectar of this plant, and it gets comfortable, and it kind of cuddles in, and it's enjoying itself, and snap, it's caught. And the harder it tries to get out, the more it gets entangled in this trap. And so I just wanted you to watch this video, so I have uh, the tech team, they're going to show it to you. Before we watch this video, take note of this, for the sake of the metaphor, the plant is your sin, and you are the fly. Take a look. The Venus flytrap. Like the sundew, it makes itself very attractive oozing nectar across the brim of each leaf. But any visiting insect had better watch out for these six tiny hairs. This fly has to tread carefully. If it strikes one hair, it can carry on feeding, but a timer has been set. A second strike in less than 20 seconds and the fly is doomed. An electrical impulse is triggered and the leaf snaps shut in just a fraction of a second. The tips lock together like prison bars. I know that's not the most encouraging thing you've ever watched in your life, but I think you get the point. More than 80 times throughout Scripture, your sin is defined as slavery, 
as enslavement or as captivity. And this goes to show just how deceptive and conniving the enemy really is. Remember the principle we started off with this morning. Everyone's a slave to something, right? You're all either a slave to sin or you're a servant of God. So, so let's get really practical for a moment. You might ask, okay, Justin, what does that look like for me to be a slave to sin? Let me give you two examples going back to what Rebecca Pippert outlined. She talked about power uh, and success, and she talked about acceptance. So let's look at these two things a little bit further. Some of us here, you might choose to hand yourself over to the slave master of power and success. And here's what the God of success will tell you. It'll say this. Wake up early. Come home late. Reject your family on the altar of success and power. And make sure that you climb the corporate ladder. And then, when the rat race is done... And when your life is over and with your final breath, you will realize that everything that you have worked so hard to achieve is gone and it's not coming with you. And that's the promise that I can make you as the God of power and success. And when you think about it, it's not really worth it. But don't think about it. Just keep serving me. Or perhaps some of, some of us here choose to serve the slave master of acceptance. And she will say this to you, you will be a chameleon in all of your relationships. You will try to adapt in order to fit in, in order to be well-liked. And when that doesn't work, you will begin to make compromises in your own life in order to fit in. And if that doesn't work, then you will start to triangulate with people whom you want to receive acceptance with. You will gossip, you will slander, you will harm the reputation of others. In order to forge a relationship with other people, you'll be willing to do anything in order to be accepted by people who have not yet accepted you. And on your last day and with your final breath and when everything else is done, you will realize that everything that you have worked so hard to achieve is not coming with you. That's the promise that I can make you as the God of affirmation. And when you think about it, it's not really worth it. But don't think about it. Just keep serving me. There's plenty of things that we can serve in this life. And if you have the courage to look in the mirror, maybe, just maybe, you will begin to see the God's that are creeping up in your life. Here's the truth about every person in this room. We all value worth. We all long for worth. We all long for worthiness. But here's the thing. When you try to fill the God-sized hole in your heart with a created thing, then it will leave you wanting and in despair and in the spiritual equivalent of a pigsty. And you'll suddenly realize everything that I've worked so hard to achieve brought me nothing. Nothing. And that leads to the third and final part of the process. After, after slavery and addiction, it leads to shame and to death. And we see this at the beginning and at the end. Verse 16 says... 
do you not know that when you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one that you obey, whether you are a slave of sin, which leads to death, or a slave of obedience, which leads to righteousness. And then verse 23, he finishes it off saying, for the wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is death. And this is the, by far the most painful part in the process. This is where Satan uses your own choices that you've already made and he puts them against you. All the way up to this point, Satan has been your cheerleader with the pom-pom saying, yes, do whatever you want. You only live once. Enjoy your life. Who cares what anyone else says? Do you. But then he takes off the pom-poms and he puts on the garb of a plaintiff and he starts to accuse you on the basis of the very things he used to encourage you to do. And he says, how dare you? You phony. You fake. You go to church. You read your Bible. You kiss your wife. You hug your kids. But you and I both know what you did this week. You and I both know the secret sins that you have been harboring in your own life. You are not worthy. You are worth nothing. And with the help of your own self-thought and Satan speaking to that, Satan has you exactly where he wants you. And it's in this place, a place of shame. Do you know the difference between guilt and shame? Guilt is, I made a mistake and I'm sorry. Shame is, I am a mistake and there's no way out. And there's far too many Christians who still have tremendous shame because all they have that's speaking to them is Satan and their own self-talk. And when you get in that place, that dark place where no one else communicates, you will convince yourself that you have out the cross. And there's nothing that you can do about it. But that's not where the story ends. Not with Paul, not with Jesus. And so here's the final note that I put in your note sheet. Your failure does not get the final word. Your failure doesn't get the final word. I think of 1 John chapter 2 when he says, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Who is that? Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for all of our sins. And not only for ours, but for the sins of the whole world. So here's what we learn. God longs for you to be obedient and for him to have a good relationship with you. And he longs for you to experience true human flourishing and to function the way that you have been made. But he also knows that all have fallen short of the glory of God. And that is why he sent his son Jesus in order to make a way. To make a way so that you can be set free. And so here's what this means. Victory in Christ is not found through self-discipline. It's not found in perfect obedience, although God longs for you to be obedient with him. Victory is found in Jesus Christ. The free gift of God is Jesus Christ. Now here's the good news. The good news is God knew what he was buying when he went on the cross. 
He knew the mistakes that you would make. He knew your shame and your brokenness and the things that you have done that you haven't told anyone. He knows all those things. And he knows the sins that you will do tomorrow and the next day after that. And he came anyway. He knew what he was purchasing and he went to the cross anyway. And in that moment when you say, I am ashamed, I am unworthy, God says, you were unworthy. But then I took to the cross. Look at the cross, dear Christian. It is bloody. It is ugly. It is despicable. And God's hatred for your sin was all put on that cross so that you can be set free. I think the right way to close is to remind ourselves once again of Luke chapter 15, where you have the younger brother and he has resolved in his mind, what I should do is to return back to my loving father and to become a volunteer slave. That's what I should do because it is far better to be the least of these in the kingdom of my father's house than to be totally and completely free in this pigsty. So he says, I'm going to go home. And as he's making his way home, his father sees him, and he chooses to be undignified. He picks up his robe, and he sprints toward his child. And when he reaches him, he hugs him and smothers him and kisses him. And scripture says he falls down on his neck because he is just so madly in love with his child. And his child tries to work out his repentance speech. Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be your child. Please make me a slave. Make me a slave. It's still far better than anything that this world can give. And what does the father do? He hushes him. And he says, servants, quick. Bring the best robe, put it on my son. Bring the signet ring, put it on his finger. Kill the fattened calf because my child was dead and is alive again, was lost and now is found. So here's the amazing thing about Romans chapter 6. He goes out of his way to try to convince you that it is far better to be a doulos, a slave in the kingdom of God. And that is absolutely true. It is absolutely true. Being a slave in the kingdom of God is far better than anything this world can give. But then to boot, what we discover is that you will not be a slave in the kingdom of God. You will be an heir of the throne, a son and a daughter of the most high God, an heir of God, and a co-heir with Christ Jesus. That's the promise that God makes to you. And he says, come to me, all of you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Let me pray for you. Lord, we thank you for the incredible gift of salvation in Jesus. We ask, Lord, that we would see that anew this morning and we would be overwhelmed by your love for us and by your grace. Because once we see you for who you truly are and how much you love us, obedience will follow as a byproduct of faith. So we ask, Lord, that you would change our hearts of stone and that you would turn them into a heart of flesh, that we would serve you 
we would love you. We would obey you. We would flee from sin and everything that entangles us. We would do everything in our power to flee from it because we desperately long to be with you. We ask that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would give us what we need to do just that. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen.